The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. I am James Birch, and with me is Father William Jenkins of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Welcome, Father. Well, thank you, Jim. Uh, tonight we are going to continue to go through uh, many of our readers' questions. Uh, they continue to come in. We are very pleased to be able to answer your questions and hope that they are helpful to you. So tonight we are going to start, start by talking about education. Our first question is about uh, whether or not Catholics should send their children to public schools. And, uh, and Father, maybe it would be good to break this question down a little bit because it presupposes some things. Um, is it possible for someone to... Uh, are there alternatives available, I guess, as well? And, and maybe you could explore mm -hmm. that a little bit. Well, if there are alternatives, then definitely the Catholics should not send their children to public schools. They are, they're government schools, is what they are. Government-run schools, according to government uh, standards, and uh, the uh, the teachers' unions, you know, actually set the the uh, the program in these schools. And so uh, there may be individual, and there are individual teachers teaching in public schools. Seem to be very fine people. Some of them, maybe traditional Catholics, who really do have the best spiritual interests of their students at heart, but they're in a hostile atmosphere. And uh, all of the uh, politically correct programs are being foisted upon these poor, innocent minds. Well, at least at some stage in their life, they're innocent until they're corrupted by these evil influences. And uh, I think people should flee the public schools like they would flee the plague. <clears throat> what alternatives do they have? Homeschooling? Yes. I, I imagine there are school. There are parents who could homeschool their children if they really were serious about it. Um, but uh, also there are traditional Catholic schools, and if they're not in their area, they should think about their priorities in their life and, and move close to a traditional Catholic school to place their children in those schools. They should make sure they really are traditional Catholic schools, though, and not just pretending to be, before they make that move. And um, so you know, I would say that there's got to be a better, a better alternative, uh, an alternative better than the public schools. Um, now, you know, one might say, well, is one of those better alternatives the local Novus Ordo school, the New Order school? I would say generally not, okay, because they add to the evil of a public school uh, on top of all the politically correct stuff that goes with the Novus Ordo. Um, they are also adding the adulteration of their religion and their faith and teaching them a false religion in, uh, name, in, in the name of Catholicism. Now, either what they're teaching them is so blatantly non-Catholic and anti-Catholic that the children will not be deceived, or what they're teaching the children has a veneer of Catholicism and could actually deceive the children into thinking 
that that is to the true Catholic faith, you know, the Novus Ordo. Uh, either way, you've got a serious problem. Uh, so I would say the simple, straightforward answer is no. Uh, remove your children from the control of the uh, of the radical socialist. Uh, politically correct government at its schools and uh, find a, a good way to school them so that they can, can learn what is right and save their souls. Um, what about um, when children get a little bit older, maybe they're getting to high school age, and um, if a, a mom was homeschooling um, her children, uh, but they get to that age where it now becomes rather difficult for them uh, to do the homeschooling, um, obviously, um, yeah, classes, physics and chemistry and uh, more advanced math courses that might be difficult for uh, a homeschooling mom to be able to teach. Um, how, how can a mom handle that? Um, now, if it, with trying to stay away from the public schools, and, then, and I very much agree with the idea that uh, sending them to a Catholic school can be very confusing because you send the kids to what's called a Catholic school and then they go there and get taught things that are not Catholic. What about um, Protestant schools? You didn't mention that uh, as a potential option if you found a, a fairly conservative school like that. <clears throat> well, I know some traditional Catholic parents have, have um, chosen that route because all of the other alternatives were actually worse. Um, if a parent finds it necessary, to, or the best, or the least bad option, because it's not a good option. We're not talking about good, better, best. We're talking about bad, worse, and worst here. If a parent finds that the uh, the least bad option the parent has, realistically, is to send the child to a Protestant school, that parent would have to get some uh, some things straight with the administration in the Protestant school that his or her child would not be proselytized, um, <clears throat> would not have to learn anti-Catholicism or anything contrary to his or her faith, not take part in any religious services um, of the Protestants. And um, the Catholic would have, to, would have to be sure of that, would have to be constantly checking to make sure that the child was not being misled into a false religion. Uh, the parent would have to realize that he's, he's sending the child into what is spiritually and religiously enemy territory, um, of those who uh, are descended from those who have denied the Catholic faith and made war on the faith, uh, heretics and erasiarchs in the past. And the child uh, would have to uh, deal with this, um, uh, possibly even a certain hostility, the child would experience a certain hostility toward the Catholic faith and a certain contempt for the Catholic faith, some uh, disparaging remarks about it. So it had to be very clear that such would not be um, uh, something a child would have to face and be confronted with. Um, uh, you know, inevitably the child will have to uh, answer some questions and obtain answers for questions because the child will have had questions posed to him or that will occur to him that seem to challenge the Catholic teaching. Uh, and the child really should learn the answers. So it can be an opportunity for the child to learn some apologetics, you know, answers that the child would need to have for himself, but for others who it might ask also about the Catholic faith on this issue or that. But it's dangerous.
There, there are certain dangers attached. If we can make the, the dangers remote enough, then it could be justified. If there's approximate uh, danger to the faith, a serious, very serious danger to the faith, a child, a parent could never send his child to those schools or anywhere else where there's, a, where there's approximate serious danger to the faith, grave danger. Um, there are also possibly, and, you know, and I kind of preface it by talking about older students because um, one would think at least that possibly if an older student had been homeschooled for some length of time before that, they would have some of those answers going in. Is there, there, would there definitely be a difference between maybe sending someone in the lower grades who has not been exposed to the Catholic faith and doesn't have as much training versus an older student who might have more of a, the background there? Well, there could be. I mean, it depends on the student, you know. Uh, you might send little ones, uh, younger ones, second, third graders, to such a school, and they may be taught a very generic Christianity without any of the questions of Catholicism, Protestantism, and so on. They might just be taught Bible stories, you know. Uh, but if you had an older student who uh, is going to a, a Protestant school, conservative, politically, maybe even morally, okay, but nonetheless adheres to Protestant doctrine, they may find themselves uh, confronted with theological questions at that level. So um, I would say unless the student can be well fortified, he shouldn't go there. Right? He's got to have access to the true answers. Um, you know, one thing that hasn't come up here is that many of these public school systems have come up with online courses that enable parents to homeschool their children uh, over the computer, right? And I'm very loath to direct any youngster to the internet or such connections, you know. Um, nonetheless, I mean, that would be a, a lesser evil alternative that to send them into that classroom and into that environment in the public school with all the immodesty and the impurity and the uh, just the contempt for real authority and so on. So, and you know, the drugs and not sometimes even violence and so on. So, uh, and again, that's not to say that all the teachers are bad and that's not to say that all the students are bad in the, in the public schools. Um, I mean, we've known some very good people who have come through by the grace of God, come through and had their faith intact and and uh, even rather develop. But I consider that to be a moral miracle itself. Um, but there are the online schools uh, that allow the parents to keep the children home, let them take the courses online. Of course, the parent has to keep track of what's being taught there too, you know, especially in areas like uh, history, right? Uh, English, what literature they're required to read, and so on. Um, but I've heard that, um, well, let me put it this way. It seems to me that the public school systems that have brought this on, that have brought this about, that parents could follow that as an alternative, are concerned by the rise of the homeschooling uh, parent. And they're afraid of losing these students and the revenue that they get because of these students being enrolled in their programs at their public schools. And so they've actually uh, invented these homeschool programs through the public schooling system to try to keep this, those children within the public school system somehow. 
Um, so a parent does really have to watch closely what the children are being taught over the screen. Um, and the, the parent, in any case, does really have to be ultimately the, the homeschool teacher, even if the child is learning over the, uh, the Internet um, through the, the programs provided by the state. The parent has to be right there and has to uh, make sure that whatever is being taught is correct. And if, if there is something incorrect being taught, the parent has to be able to correct it. If there's something that should be taught that is not being taught, the parent has to provide it. There's still quite a burden on the parent, so that that, that is right, that, that works out correctly. It's uh, interesting, uh, you know, with the, with the public school system that you had mentioned history and, and what the children are reading, especially because um, even, even aside from the moral and, and faith-based issues that, that the children need to face in the schools, um, in, in early writings uh, in the uh, early 1800s, uh, Frederick Bastiat and, and uh, de Tocqueville talked about maybe the greatest evil that could befall a nation economically and politically was having public schools because then you have teachers who are getting their paychecks from the government. And if the government's doing something wrong, the last thing <clears throat> the teachers are going to tell the students is that their paycheck <clears throat> is coming from someone who's doing something wrong. So the children can't get a good education. And then that's how history gets changed because the government wants the teachers to teach history a certain way. <clears throat> and, the, and the teachers can't say no. <clears throat> and, and you get revisionist history and revisionist books. And, and that's what gets well, one has to children. remember that. The teachers and staff who work in government schools are agents of the government. They're government agents, okay? They have to be, right? Um, they're employed by the government to do this job for the government, okay? So, um, you're right, absolutely. And, and, and Jim, as you know, there's nothing in the United States Constitution that provides for the federal government having any involvement or authority over the education of a single citizen of the United States of America. There is nothing in the United States Constitution that provides any authority or power to the federal government or any agency to determine the education of children in this country. But the, the founding of the, the establishment of the Department of Education was and a, a travesty. It wasn't just an anomaly. It was a direct attack on the Constitution, which is very clearly that power is enumerated, not enumerated, you know, go to the states and the citizens. And that was a power that was not enumerated. So there was government usurpation. It was, a, it was a, well, I mean, in my estimation, it was a crime against the Constitution of the United States of America. But they let it happen, of course, and they've been letting it happen ever since, you know. Our Congress and all the rest has just been going along with the revolution and betraying the children into the hands of a federal bureaucracy. It's, a, it's an awful thing. One thing, even if the child, even if the parent, let's say, can find a, an educational program for his or her child, which is a good educational program, which provides the truth and not error, okay, it is still going to be incumbent upon the parent himself or herself to provide that religious education for the child. Obviously, the parent cannot look to the state to provide that. 
and wouldn't want the state to be involved in that anyway. So, uh, you know, that ultimately the parents have that responsibility from God anyway, right? To make sure that the child receives the proper religious education. Um, but in the case that the child has gone to, uh, uh, let's say, an online program from the state government or a Protestant school that's very conservative in its politics and its morals, the parent definitely needs to make sure that the child receives the necessary religious education. And if, it's, if the parent can't get that in a, their local traditional Catholic uh, chapel or a local traditional Catholic school, uh, they, they, the parents have to make sure they, they, they can provide that for their children. Um, there's a lot of information out there. There are a lot of programs online. I'm going through the catechism, the brief catechism for adults. I don't know that that would be suitable, useful for a high school program of catechism instruction for, uh, for traditional Catholic children who are being homeschooled. I don't know. I guess the parents would have to decide whether look at some of these uh, programs we're turning out on the lessons in this brief catechism for adults and decide whether this would be suitable for my child, right? But in any case, there are programs available, and if the children um, uh, are very well, you know, very well versed and uh, have the, the educational background they should have, they can do a lot of study on their own, too. Um, there are a lot of, um, I would say, conservative. <clears throat> I would have to call them conservative Novus Ordo uh, homeschool programs, also. Okay. Um, that, for the most part, a parent would find does provide the religious education that coincides with the traditional Catholic faith. But at the same time, these conservative Novus Ordo homeschool programs are going to be injecting Novus Ordo ideas <clears throat> about Vatican II, trying to dress them up in Catholic uh, in Catholic clothes and pass them off as traditional Catholic. The Novus Ordo popes and their pronouncements <clears throat> that don't openly differ and disagree with traditional Catholic teaching, these conservative Novus Ordo programs will be trying to invoke these. I see a real danger in that. Right? Again, as I talked about recently, to think one can be traditional Catholic within the Novus Ordo is a tragic mistake, okay? So if a parent sees that, well, this homeschool program coming from this place or that, that is a conservative Novus Ordo program, could be useful for my child, uh, those parents have to be very much on guard to make sure that their children don't get drawn into Novus Ordo thinking. Because the new order is modernism, and modernism is intrinsically evil and contrary to the Catholic faith. Um, now, this is not a, a reader question, but it, it, um, it does involve uh, some viewers because we have viewers that are uh, international in scale. And so if we, we took this one step further, we are fortunate uh, that, uh, as of today still at least, um, yeah, we're able to homeschool children here in the United States. So if you can't be near a traditional Catholic school, you can at least um, have the potential to homeschool your children. Um, some countries, that's not a possibility, though. Right. right. And um, 
the children have to show proof that they're going to uh, a school of some sort, and the parents may not have the means of, of leaving that country for whatever reason it is. Um, how far can parents go to uh, try to shield their, their children from those types of schools? I mean, uh, short of, of sending their children out of the country to get educated, um, can they, um, I, I mean, well, what can they do? I mean, at what point does it become uh, that the state is actually creating unjust laws uh, and, and the parents need to do something about it? Well, you know that some nations in Europe actually kidnap the children. Mm-hmm. They actually kidnap the children. They'll take them away at gunpoint, hold them, even for years, okay? Uh, from parents who want to homeschool their children, try to homeschool their children. Uh, it's a very evil thing. It, it seems strange. You know, at the same time, there's this um, politically correct and <clears throat> morally correct, frankly, <clears throat> um, rejection of national socialism, Nazism, <clears throat> the, the, the fascist idea is very much alive and well in these modern European nations, some of them, uh, when it comes to the education of children that they, these nations, these governments think that these children belong to them, that they have prior, prior right to these children uh, over and above the parents. And um, this, is an, a, this is a communist idea. Uh, communist and fascist, any totalitarian government is going to assert this, <clears throat> that your children are not yours, they belong to us. Uh, the communist Chinese, uh, when they took under, under Mao, right, back in the 1940s, it's one of the first things they did, was assert their right over every single child uh, over and above the right of any parent, okay, to, to take the child away from the parent because in destroying the family, and that was very hard in China, they thought that they, that they would make the children and every citizen in that country have no loyalties but to the party. The party, all the loyalty must be to the party, Communist Party. And so uh, when we find these uh, nations of Europe now, Treating the children this way, um, that these children are basically simply um, uh, creatures of the society and they belong to the society in which they live. This means the government has absolute control over their education. This follows the John Dewey idea right, to the nth degree. It's criminal. It is evil. Okay. And there are, there are parents in these European countries who are dealing with this right now. Uh, what can they do? <clears throat> maybe they don't, can't afford to leave the country. Uh, maybe they can't afford to send their children outside their country to, uh, to be educated. <clears throat> uh, they're, they're essentially prisoners in their own countries. They have to try to militate against this. They have to try to get legal forces behind them, right? Um, they have to uh, resist in every way this jackbooted totalitarianism uh, that has asserted their, its power over their families. They have to protect their children to the extent that they can. They might find that the only way that they can keep their family together and retain their children at home is to accede to the 
dictates of the tyrant, the tyranny by sending their children to these public schools <clears throat> or these government schools, whatever. But they have to be, again, very careful to deprogram their children as much as they can. Okay? But if I were uh, a parent in those countries that uh, uh, asserted uh, governmental rights over my children over my head and passed me the point where they were threatening to take my children away from me, if I taught them the way I saw fit and prevented them from being taught the way I, I know is wrong, I would do everything I could to escape, escape that country uh, as we saw people trying to escape through the minefields of barbed wire and over the wall from communist East Europe. I mean, you had people who were risking their lives and the lives of their families to escape from the tyranny of communist domination there. And I, I see these people exactly as those people there. And, uh, I mean, I, I, I would do nothing short of risking my life to try to get away from them and get into the, to the free world, assuming there is such a thing anymore, but at least where I would be allowed to teach my children as, as I know is right. Well, our next um, set of questions here continues with a the theme of education, although it's um, maybe not quite as uh, it was a lighter subject matter. Um, we have uh, some questions from uh, a, a mother who is uh, beginning some homeschooling, and her questions are about uh, teaching her children, and her question is, um, how do dinosaurs fit into the timeline of creation? Do dinosaurs walk the earth at the same time as man? Yes. Okay. The evidence seems to show, and I'm no authority on the subject, certainly, but the evidence does seem to show uh, the presence of human beings and the presence of, of dinosaurs together. Now, some would totally deny the existence of dinosaurs. Some would say that these are all fabricated, all these dinosaur digs and all the fossilized bones and so on, <clears throat> dinosaur eggs. Some would say that it's a complete fabrication. Okay. I don't see that that way. I see uh, the dinosaurs as a reaction of nature to sin. And, um, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, there, there is evidence that at least uh, what I see is clear and incontrovertible evidence <clears throat> uh, that human beings have left their un unmistakably human footprints <clears throat> even sometimes within dinosaur prints. Mm -hmm. Uh, dinosaur tracks, and um, I don't see any possible, reasonable explanation, but that they coexisted. <clears throat> and one might say that uh, you and I would be very ill-equipped to live in a world infested by dinos with dinosaurs. <clears throat> but nonetheless, uh, there is evidence, I understand also, that shows <clears throat> that we have devolved, not evolved. We have devolved in the sense that our, our physical powers are minimized compared with human beings who lived before. Uh, even the Bible itself, Scripture talks about the giants, okay? And there are some rather strange, uh, strange things out there that I do not believe are fabricated. <clears throat> and I understand that uh, measurements have even been taken 
on the stride of human footprints of, you know, <clears throat> millennia ago that show that uh, primitive man, so-called, okay, we don't believe in it the way they pro projected, the evolutionists projected, <clears throat> but I say primitive, I mean, with all of our mo without all of our modern technology, could have run <clears throat> 40 miles an hour, 35 miles an hour. It sounds ridiculous today, I suppose. <clears throat> but, you know, it really gets back to this. Our faith tells us that when God created our first parents, Adam and Eve, he created them with a supernatural, uh, with a supernatural life of divine grace in their souls. He created them with the preternatural gifts. Not, we're, we're not due to them by nature, but they were gifts from God. A freedom from suffering, a freedom from death, uh, infused knowledge, and so on. But their physical powers were far beyond anything that we know. <clears throat> and in fact, uh, you know, we see, not only in our own day, but we also see in previous generations, a tendency... <clears throat> to come up with these superhuman powers and dream about them and fantasize about them. Uh, you know, our Superman, our, our you know, other Fantastic Four or whatever else that they used to have, they give them these, these preternatural powers, physical powers, right? Superhuman strength. <clears throat> the ability to run like, like the wind, the ability to leap tall buildings and, and so on. Well, is this not some type of indication that when our, when, when our race was first created by God, that Adam and Eve were, relative to us, superhuman in their physical powers? If we were transplanted back to the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve had sinned, had sinned we would be in awe of them. We would, we would scarcely grasp that we were the same species, possibly, because we are so crippled in soul, in mind, in our emotions, our passions, and bodies. <clears throat> the result of sin has been devastating to us. But the idea that we fantasize about having these superhuman powers is that we realize that there's something that's missing in us that we, we want to have so much. You know? It is also an indication that we, we have souls that are akin to the angels, and we, we even almost want the powers of angels. And that is because we have spirits, souls, that can... In a, that, that, that can Com not comprehend these things, but understand the existence, but, but know the existence of these things. And uh, we can have their powers explained to us, even though we can't experience them directly. And so we can fantasize, you know, what do we have the power of an angel? It's a, a sign that we do have a spiritual soul within us that's created in God's image and likeness. So, um, I, I think it is very likely, and I guess, uh, you know, I wouldn't talk to an evolutionist uh, about this because the evolutionist would uh, say that I should be locked up and the key thrown away, from, like the lunatic, for thinking about this. 
But I actually do believe that the actual evidence shows, uh, evidence that you would never be allowed to hear if you were in a public school system, uh, that yes, human beings did coexist with the dinosaurs. And they held their own, obviously. Here we are and they're not. <laughs> and that's because we couldn't overpower them physically even then. But we have the power of the human mind, uh, which is, is, is the result of the soul that God gave us. Uh, the next question um, goes along uh, somewhat along these same lines, and that is... Um, what about uh, people's appearances and uh, ethnicities being different from one another? Uh, how did this come about? And I, I guess it really would harken back to probably uh, the time after Noah and mm -hmm. Noah's sons uh, repopulating the earth. Mm -hmm. Well, sometimes people ask the question, how could there be such a, a wide variety of human traits, physical traits, especially, uh, when the whole human race came from a couple of first parents to begin with, and then uh, uh, the human race multiplied, and then again, only a handful of people were allowed to survive, right, mm -hmm. from that ancient world in the flood. And so, but we find, you know, uh, the range of skin color from almost ebony to almost uh, albino, right, <clears throat> or downright albino. And we find, you know, the tall and the thin and... Uh, and you know, the bald and the hairy and all the rest, we find all these traits here. Uh, how can that be? You know, <clears throat> especially now that we understand the genetics of all this. Um, well, I think it is um, perfectly orthodox, both spiritu uh, spiritually and scientifically, and there can't really be any contradiction between the two because they both come from the same God. It's all truth, right? to say that when God created our first parents, Adam and Eve, <clears throat> the human genome was complete. If the human genome was complete and contained within it all the possible variations that there could be. I mean, God does like variety. It's very clear he likes variety, right? The flowers haven't sinned, right? But we find a tremendous variety. Um, <clears throat> and um, so that God could endow Adam and Eve with this fullness of the human genome and all the... I mean, <clears throat> you and I both have genetic traits that are not being expressed right now because our genes as such uh, <clears throat> are not expressing these traits. As we go through life, we do that. As we go through life, and as we're born in infants, there are things that are going to develop in us that are not active yet. But they're implicit. They're, they're, what do we say, latent, okay? <clears throat> and then as we grow in certain uh, set times in our lives, then those genes begin to express themselves and things happen to us. The changes come over us. We develop <clears throat> what was not developed before. Now, if we see that in our everyday experience, and every one of us experiences that in his own life, <clears throat> I don't see why that would be in any way problematic, to say that the entire race could experience that from just the, uh, the human gene that, that we find God instilled in Adam and Eve to produce their physical bodies with all of the characteristics they had, and then <clears throat> from there to have a natural development so that you would have all the races 
uh, develop, develop from that single genome. I think it's perfectly possible. One person actually I'd like to talk to about that would be Francis Collins. Uh, Francis Collins is a real scientist, and not one of these <clears throat> evolutionary, um, what should I say, um, <clears throat> evolutionist uh, agents uh, who have adulterated science with their ideology. Uh, call them evolutionist ideologues. Uh, Francis Collins <clears throat> does believe in God, and he believed that uh, his study in the human genome was revealing to him the blueprint in the mind of God for man in his physical, in his, the physical part of his nature. Uh, Collins, Francis Collins has written at least one book on the subject. He's probably written several books. And um, very revealing from the standpoint of someone who has, has a, a faith, you know, a faith in God as creator. He even had a, a in-print debate with Richard Dawkins, and Richard Dawkins obviously had a certain admiration for Francis Collins. Uh, even at the end of the debate, the debate uh, Richard Dawkins made a concession. He said, well, maybe there is a God, but if there is, he certainly isn't the Christian God. Mm -hmm. He is not the, the God the Christians believe in, because he, he finds that unacceptable. Okay, <clears throat> That's... Uh, Richard Dawkins, you know, the man who claims to be a scientist, but he rules out <clears throat> even the hypothesis of the God of the Christians being real because he finds it unacceptable. Mm -hmm. Well, so th that's their approach to, to uh, evolution, too. Mm -hmm. Whatever contrary, is contrary to their pet theory of evolution, they simply find it unacceptable. But in any case, <clears throat> uh, as I say, I'd like to talk to Francis Collins about this because uh, Francis Collins was the scientist who headed up the team, the worldwide team. I understand that at site there were 3,000 scientists around the world who were working on this project under the leadership of Francis Collins to decode the human genome. That's a monument of science, real science. And... Um, Francis Collins perhaps has uh, the most in-depth understanding of the human genome, I guess, of his generation. Um, one thing in his book that I, I found problematic, even though I didn't really know the science of it, but I found problematic <clears throat> that he claimed that there is evidence for evolution, even uh, macroevolution within the human genome. Because he said there are long, uh, there are links in the human genome <clears throat> that are inherited from uh, previous species from which we've developed. So there's a lot of junk DNA, as they call it, that serves no purpose. And my thought was at the time I read this, <clears throat> how does Francis Collins know that that DNA link there, whatever you want to call it, that length of DNA? serves no purpose. We just don't know what it is yet. Is it not possible that it serves a serious purpose? <clears throat> it's just not expressed at this moment in life, or um, it actually does serve a very serious purpose that we just haven't identified yet. And lo and behold, um, 
it has come out that what was thought to be junk DNA actually does serve a very important purpose in our genome. So it's not an argument that we, we inherited as a leftover from the time we were frogs. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, I, I, I do nonetheless uh, have a, a great respect for uh, Francis Collins as a scientist and it'd be interesting to, to pose the question to him, you know, where did this great uh, diversity within the human species come from biologically uh, with the understanding that we all descended from common parents. Wasn't there even an element of uh, adaption in there, I guess, to some extent, too? I mean, on a very broad scale, you could, you could talk about those who have the darker skin living near the equator because their skin better adapts to sunshine and the, versus those of lighter skin being more towards the north or the south. But then, um, you know, even, even today they, they've done studies on uh, people who live in different areas and um, they can't account for the fact that uh, you know these uh, Ethiopian uh, men keep winning the, the marathons and the, mm -hmm. and the Olympics and the golds. And and they, they the theory was for many years was that well they live up in very high climates and and so if you train in very high climates you could you could close mm -hmm. that gap and and it doesn't matter that we have not been able to we have athletes in the United States who go up into the Colorado Rockies mm -hmm. and they train there they they're still they're still behind and and as they 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 do more and more research they're just finding that you know those people who live in those areas who need to be able to not only survive at those high climates but part of their their life to even survive in those mountainous areas is to be able to every day travel huge amounts of distances mm -hmm. and do it easily i mean god created us with the ability to adapt to our environment as well so mm -hmm. sometimes as people would move into different areas their their bodies are going to adapt because that god gave us that ability to some extent well, the evolutionist would say that uh, it's the survival of the fittest and those who are better adapted to the environment are going to survive. I mean, they, they would say that there are two keys to the survival of, uh, uh, let's say, a certain bloodline, if you want, I don't know. But the fact that uh, you can adapt, there's going to be... Um, a, a mortality, a greater rate of mortality among those who do not have the right traits for survival in a particular environment, right? Uh, another indicator of survivability, right, is the number of offspring you can generate, right? Those who can uh, generate a great massive number of offspring have a greater chance of, well, they have a greater chance of variety in the offspring and therefore adaptability in environment. So you'd expect a species that can generate uh, tremendous amounts of offspring and <clears throat> the offspring themselves would have a, a variety, right, within them that that's the species that will survive better. Now, you know, <clears throat> some of this is actually just common sense and, and people have known this People have known this all this time. It's not inventing something new. This wasn't a great discovery. It wasn't even Darwin who discovered this, you know. Um, he's credited with it, but he didn't really discover this. The, the point is, we know, right, that um, if, if we were to... There, there are environments that we could go to that we would have be very hard-pressed to survive, okay? Because we do not have the... the uh, the powers, the strengths, whatever it is, uh, that would match the demands of that climate or the food uh, availability or 
be able to resist the predators in that environment, whatever it might be. Challenges to our survival <clears throat> that we're really not suited for, okay? <clears throat> and so, yes, I mean, there are different uh, traits, uh, height, strength, skin color, shortness of fingers to conserve heat, right, in, uh, in cold climates. All of those things play a factor, play a role <clears throat> as, to far, as far as what traits thrive uh, and, and uh, come out of this rate of mortality with an advantage than to breed, to have children, and to perpetuate those traits. I mean, I don't know how else to put it right now, and I'm probably not being very scientific in my expression, but nonetheless, I think you get the idea. We know that's called microevolution. Um, the problem is this. It's not that we don't know that, that those human beings who live up in northern climates have certain traits characteristic that, that, that are, are just really, um, if not ideal, suited all right, to live in that climate, to survive in that climate, to have children in that climate, to pass on those traits to future generations in that climate. And those at the equator, you know, similar, similar situation, very different traits, but nonetheless also equally <clears throat> suitable to survive and thrive in that climate. Uh, to say that these traits then over a, so many generations mean that you evolve into a different species, <clears throat> little by little, over millions and millions of years, and they need those millions of years. They invent all these millions and billions of years because they need them to support the theory of evolution. Um, even that doesn't work. It really doesn't work. Uh, to show that one species evolves into another, especially on this level, to, to argue for the evolution of human beings is outrageous. Right? So uh, that's, that's where we have to part company with them and uh, say that, you know, what, much of what you're saying is common sense in terms of what is called microevolution within the species. But then when you start arguing that all of these minute changes gradually lead one species, species becoming another, <clears throat> there's no record of that. There's no trace of that. There's no evidence for that. Well, then they get into the idea of evolution per saltum. That is, one species just suddenly becomes another species, right? Almost overnight, right? <clears throat> and again, you ask, okay, well, you, where, where do you have evidence that this was that the, the day before? Um, to put it you know, in, a, in a very colloquial way, uh, you may notice that when you go to some of these natural history museums, they have the skeletal uh, structure, it might not be complete, of a, of a rat, let's say, or a rat-like creature, and they be gradually have them lined up, the skeletons in a row, until they get to something that is like a hominid. And then they go from that little by little to Homo sapiens today, and here you are, uh, Homo erectus, and uh, you know, you've gone past that stage, Homo faber, and there you are, modern man. And as some have pointed out, <clears throat> they arrange these things to tell a story that is not there in reality. Mm -hmm. They haven't found these skeletal remains arrayed 
in the fossil record in this way. Mm -hmm. uh, they've just gratuitously arranged them this way to make you think, <clears throat> draw the conclusion that this became that, and that became that, and that became that, right? And ultimately it became me. Um, the reason you, they can use this means to convince us of this is because, oddly enough, they're trying to use our human reason coming from our souls to make us see a logical, rational connection here. And so they're actually appealing to the spirit, the soul in us, to make that logical conclusion. Which, in the very, the logical conclusion denies, denies the reality that we, we even have, should have the logic and the soul and the power of reason to come to that conclusion. You know, there's a contradiction there, but that's what they do. And uh, it's kind of a dirty trick. Well, I've looked at those before, least. and I've thought the opposite. I've always thought, well, I look at the way that it kind of like, it builds up. And then and then it goes to man, and it's always like a drop off actually at the end. And I always go, evolution is really messed up because I'd rather go about back about two or three <laughs> steps because then I could rip the arms off of a modern day man if I was still built like that. And it's like, why did we de-evolve all of a sudden, you know, uh, physically? So you know, it's uh, well, you know, they'll use the excuse they oh well because man has uh, figured out how to grow food and use tools, and so he didn't need to be strong anymore, but. But in their timeline, man has only been around for a few thousand years, not the millions and millions even that, you know, that they've talked about. So, they the, so the de-evolution took place really fast, you know, all of a sudden at the end. Uh, uh, well, you know, they've also come up now with different strains of man. Now, we have Denisovan, I think they have, and the Neanderthal, and we interbreeded, but we weren't the same species, really. You know, and they come up with hominid, humanoids and hominids and all the other stuff. Um, it's amazing what their fantasy can do with this, you know, <clears throat> but it really is just fantasizing. Um, but I mean, we can go really off on the tangent following their tangent. Mm -hmm. um, but we have to be very careful about that. Um, well, the Pope Pius XII in Humanum Generis said that, uh, look, as far as physical evolution, I mean, there's, there's nothing to, uh, in the spiritual level and the level of faith, to say it is impossible, could not have happened. Um, he says that has to stand on its scientific merit. It doesn't stand very well today. Uh, it doesn't stand as well as Homo erectus, certainly, uh, who needs help being propped up there. Uh, but um, he says you have to... Not, in the face of all this, 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 this theorizing and fantasizing, one ca Catholic has to always remember there is a, an immortal soul created by God in His own image and likeness, and instilled in human beings, and that there is moral responsibility for good and evil, the decisions we make. There's heaven, hell, as the consequences of our of our decisions to be faithful to God or unfaithful to Him. There is sin. And he, he said, basically, you have to understand the catechism is all true. <clears throat> and that none of this scientific theorizing or fantasizing, um, which, which amounts very much to basically science fiction these days, uh, can in any way impugn the truth in, in, the, in the catechism, in the scriptures. That is the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Anything that would contradict that is false. It's actually very interesting that you said that because the, 
goes right along with what um, my thought was, is that in the argument that uh, about evolution and adaption and all that, the one thing that always never really comes out in, in, in modern studies, scientific studies even, especially about athletes and, uh, and what, what, what people can do, it, it doesn't take into consideration the, the, the fact of man's, man's mind and, and, and the spirit of man. Because there's always examples of people uh, throughout all of history who were not fit to lead, who were not fit to, to be great, and yet overcame that because, because of their spirits, because, because of, of uh, you know, and, and, and even the, the books that when they talk about the Ethiopian runners or, or other people like that, they're, they're, they talk about these exceptions and they can't figure it out because it just doesn't fit into evolution. It doesn't fit into the fact that if you don't fit the mold, you, you, you right. shouldn't be able to do this, and yet that human beings still can, and that comes from the spirit. Yeah. Right. I mean, these are the great heroic stories of our of our race, you know, of our of our, uh, our species, if you want to call it that. That we glorify the exceptions, right? Mm -hmm. And we 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 say this is a triumph of the human spirit, you know. Um, and really, I mean, often it really is a triumph of the soul over mere matter, the here and now, and, um, and the fact that the human mind can reach into the, into the farthest reaches of the universe, grasp the concept, even understand or calculate what was this, um, um, you know, so many years ago? What will it be if there is a million years from now? I mean, we see this because we have the power of reason to understand things in their causes, uh, which enables us not only to understand uh, the past and, the, and even the future, project the future, which enables us to go beyond the, the length of our arms or the, 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 you know, how far our eyes can see, but build instruments that enable us to see into, into the vast reaches of space. We can see, we can look there because we've expanded our powers of our eyes and our ears, our touch and all that so amazingly. Right? <clears throat> but the fact is that we can understand the purpose of these things. And uh, we are purpose-driven. That's not just some, some structure of dendrons in the brain or uh, you know, axions in the brain, whatever they want to call them. Uh, uh, sure, I mean, in the brain we find brain structures that correspond even at times to spiritual things. You, know, that we, you can force the brain to experience like an out-of-body is big sensation and so on and so forth. And some people say, well, you see, that's the foundation of all religion. <clears throat> they say, well, we're hardwired in our brain, you know, to believe there is a supreme being who made all things, to believe there is a God. And some people say, you see, that just proves it's an accident of evolution. It must provide some evolutionary uh, advantage, <clears throat> but it doesn't correspond to reality necessarily. It's, it's a beneficial illusion that we have. But the fact is, our faith would teach us, well, of course, <clears throat> to go along with the human soul, there has to be a brain that is, a, that is made for that soul and the powers of that soul. So you would expect to find in the brain <clears throat> physical components <clears throat> that would correspond to the powers of the soul. And that doesn't, doesn't explain the powers of the soul, doesn't explain them away. Quite the contrary. It explains why those things are there, why they are in the brain. 
And so, um, I mean, that in itself is an argument for the spirituality of man, the presence of a, of a human soul. Well, we've come a long way from, you know, the, the, uh, the coexistence of dinosaurs and human beings, of course. Uh, but, again, I, I think all of it is important for us to, to grasp, okay? So we don't fall into the, <clears throat> into the archaeologist's pit <clears throat> and be excavated there as some kind of fossil. Um, <clears throat> with, a, with a complete misunderstanding, false understanding of who we are. Um, it is not Darwin who has the power to tell human beings who we are. It is God who created us. We find that answer in sacred scripture, especially in the words of our Lord in the Gospels. And anybody who would uh, try to uh, promote a contrary idea, I mean, it's, that's the anti-gospel. Um, anyway, the modernists in, in the Vatican, to get on another subject, have now conceded to evolution. They've, they've conceded formally to evolutionism. And that's a, that, that's a tragedy. You know? But that's what modernism does. Because modernism wants to subject everything to evolution, the rules of evolution, even religion, even faith, they want to say is an evolutionary phenomenon. It's an evolutionary process. So they've conceded the, uh, uh, the truth of evolutionism, actually. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a horrible thing uh, to witness that they've almost uh, basically sold their souls. I don't know how else to put it. They've actually almost sold their souls. Well, Father, the, uh, the final question pertaining to education uh, that we have tonight is, um, how did, well, this could pertain to any group of people throughout the world, I guess, but how did the Native Americans get to the Americas? <clears throat> Greyhound. <clears throat> um, well, I, uh, believe it or not, I wasn't there at the time. Okay, I may be liquid enough, but I wasn't in on this, okay? I wasn't even coexisting with dinosaurs when in my youth. Okay? It might look that way, but it's not true. So I can't tell you from personal experience how it happened. But, you know, I think there are some interesting uh, events that have happened as we see peoples um, tying uh, 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 tree limbs together and floating a long way. I mean, we're still trying to do that in kayaks and rowboats and, and uh, styrofoam rafts and all the rest. We're still trying to get across the oceans, you know. <clears throat> so... The, if we look back, even in our own history, since our Lord came into the world, and we look at the, 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 the odysseys of human beings and what they've done, their travels, it's phenomenal what they did. In, the, in those little uh, glorified uh, rafts that they were floating around in out there in the oceans. My goodness, talk about faith. Talk about courage, what these women had. And uh, I heard the name Brendan the Navigator mentioned recently. Um, and there is evidence that, that he came from Europe and went through Iceland, Greenland, the shores of, of North America, down the coast of North America. I mean, these were real explorers then. For them to have traveled from one continent to another, even separated by vast, you know, distances uh, over open water, 
for them, you know, that is not beyond their power to do that. <clears throat> they were survivors. They know how to. They knew how to survive. They knew how to live in the world. They were not like us. <clears throat> Take away our latte, right? <clears throat> and we're lost. Okay. I mean, <clears throat> we need all the amenities to survive. We can't imagine surviving. The younger generation growing up today, uh, they can't imagine survival without. Well, there, there's the, the the joke about how people now they they leave their house and they have to go back because of something that didn't even exist 25, 30 years ago because they forgot their cell phone at home. Right? You can't can't go out without your cell phone. You've now. got to have that. Right? You got to have the electronic leash wherever you go because you're not really <clears throat> connected. Um, you're you're completely isolated. Right? It's as though you've been buried alive without that thing because you can't communicate with anyone. So, yeah, I mean, it's so true. It's scary. I mean, some people go into the shakes when they get connect, disconnected from these things. And it's, uh, I mean, <clears throat> that's scary in terms of what, where evolution would take that little problem. <laughs> okay. Um, and where we are going with that little problem right now. But in any case, back to the point, uh, I see no problem myself to respond to the question <clears throat> with uh, what we <clears throat> condescendingly call primitive man was actually very, very bright <clears throat> and um, had an enormous amount of common sense coupled with a superior strength of body and probably a more acute eyesight and hearing and everything else uh, that they could have actually made it from one continent to another and bred uh, by having children, establishing households, uh, going on from there to tribes and cities and nations and so on, and even empires. So, um, and that in, in a very short time. I mean, look, we know. We know the story, at least we, we have enough to say. We know essentially the story of uh, Romulus and Remus, right? I mean, there's a lot of, you might call it mythology, legend about them. Uh, the fact that they were raised by a wolf as infants because their lives were threatened and they had to be hidden away. We read about Moses being found in a basket because the Hebrews are being threatened in Egypt, you know? And we, we learned that these stories are very plausible. And they're not just stories. Certainly in Moses' case, they were a story. Because we've seen feral children who are raised by wild animals in the, in the, uh, in the forests and the jungles and so on. Uh, we, we, we've almost proven to ourselves now that these, these things are, you know, they happen. So uh, it's not an invention of an overactive imagination. It's not mythology, not fable. Um... So we find Romulus, I guess. I, I, I understand that his name actually means the, the little, little man by the river. Uh, the story of him fleeing Troy, right? <clears throat> With the destruction of Troy by the Greeks. And, uh, and making his way to, to what is now Italy, okay? And finding that little, well, at the time it might have been much greater than it is now, the hill, the, what we now know as the Palatine Hill, unoccupied, uh, 
a man who was a shepherd. He'd become basically a man uh, who had made his living as a shepherd at that point. You know? And so he established a homestead there on the Palatine Hill and named it after the, the Trojan god of shepherd, goddess of shepherds, Pales. And that that has come down to us now as one of the seven hills of Rome, okay? Not just the city, but the empire. So what he began there as a simple refugee homesteader, right? Grew into the Republic of Rome, the Empire of Rome. And how long did it take? 700 years. A little more, a little more than 700 years. From a, an individual and his, his wife, and their family growing into the Empire of Rome. Phenomenal. In a matter of basically seven centuries, you know. Um, these people were prolific, and they were courageous, and they were very, very knowledgeable about how to uh, make a life for themselves in, in what we would know as the wild. So, uh, yeah, if, if, if you want to say, well, if we expect modern man to, to do that, we would be hard-pressed to even think of it as being possible. But if we get over modern man and realize that uh, modern man has devolved from uh, what our ancestors were, uh, we could see it would be very possible for those uh, people in that time to make it from one continent to another and uh, establish themselves and grow and thrive and even become, as they say, not only tribes, but cities, states, nations, empires. Well, I mean, even just talking about navigation, am I remembering my history right that uh, was a Captain James Cook who, who had made it around the Horn of Africa mm. at, at, at some point. That was considered such an amazing feat mm. in, in those days, 500 years ago. But now we, we, we've discovered you know, pretty hard evidence that thousands of years before that, the ancient Egyptians sailed out of the Mediterranean mm. all the way around Africa and back down the, the, the Nile River, back all the way to their starting point in Egypt, thousands of years before, maybe even right around the time when the Israelites would have been in Egypt. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, for, for them to have pulled off a feat like that thousands and thousands of years ago, I mean, man could have made it all over the, the world for sure. Uh, there's no doubt about it, Jim. No, no doubt about it. Uh, you, you know, the ancient world had secret, has its secrets from us. I mean, there are reports in the ancient world that perished with the burning of the great library in Alexandria. Uh, that we can only speculate about. There are so many mysteries of the ancient world that we have not, with all of our technology, been able to reproduce. You know? So, um, as I say, I mean, I, I consider that to be a real argument for devolution. And um, we tend to exalt ourselves because of our technology, which is wonderful. But uh, all of that, basically, is a, these are all crutches. Um, 
to supplement our very limited range of vision, uh, thought, hearing, that and so on. Um, and, and we've lost the ability to think deeply. Take the arguments of St. Thomas Aquinas, the quinque vie, in which St. Thomas <clears throat> demonstrates the existence of God as a, as a rational necessity. Okay? How many people today can even begin to understand what you're talking about <clears throat> when you propose these to them? It's like they, they can't grasp this at all. To them, it is complete nonsense. But it's not nonsense, we know, because it, it is nonsensical. To them, it's nonsense because they do not have the intellectual capacity to understand even the basic idea that you're trying to get at. Their minds can't reach that far. <clears throat> you're running and, and they're crawling. St. Thomas Aquinas, anyway, <clears throat> was run mentally an athlete running. And they, they're hardly in the stage where they can even roll over anymore intellectually. So it's, it's just so pathetic to hear a modern today dismissing the, the five ways of St. Thomas, the arguments proving that rationally there's a necessity of a supreme being who made all things, you know, who's the foundation of all, the unmoved mover, the necessary, the first cause, and all the rest. And they, they scoff at this. Um, uh, or sort of like arrogant teenagers scoffing at what their elders are telling them, you know, because they, they, don't, they just don't see it. They can't see it yet. Well, hopefully people will grow up and they will see it someday, but uh, at the rate we're going, we don't see a lot, of, a lot of evidence, a lot of signs of that happening soon. Well, that's why it's so important that uh, we get back to the, the spiritual aspect of things and uh, prayer, uh, because it's all through God that we can get back to uh, an understanding of what of true reasoning is and who we are. Right, <laughs> right exactly. Right. Well, Father, I thank you very much uh, for your uh, thoughts tonight. I thought uh, not only was it a, a, some very nice answers about uh, education, but even even about evolution and um, and uh, man's general nature uh, tonight. And I uh, appreciate, and I'm sure our viewers do very much, uh, your input in all of that as well. Well, thank you, Jim. It'd be good sometime to even go into the, more of the Catholic philosophy of education, mm. for that matter, because we spent a lot of time tonight talking about the errors <clears throat> and the atrocities committed against true education to try to prevent education, true education from coming to our children. But the positive side is, what is the Catholic concept of education? How is it applied? That would make a good program, too. Well, I thank all of our viewers uh, for uh, tuning in tonight. And we ask that uh, you uh, keep us in your prayers. Uh, we um, do appreciate all the questions that you are giving to us. And if you have any questions, feel free to email them to us. I thank you all for being our viewers. And we ask you to remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima, to make sacrifice, to pray, and to consecrate ourselves to the Immaculate Heart. Thank you.